0: and we are back once again exploring faith pursuing grace i am lee grant this is kevin pendergrass and joining us once again this week is our good friend brother daniel rogers we're happy to have daniel back and to our audience this is our 100th episode yay this also marks our inaugural attempt at video and incorporating a video component into our podcast we tried to do it just a little while ago we ran into some uh, technical snags we had some issues with bandwidth and other things that did not pan out very well so we're trying again this is our second run at it so bear with us Thank Things you all so much for better. your patience. Things, Things will get better. Get better. They this always is our do.
1: pilot episode. We've already ordered equipment and everything, so <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna get a whole lot better.
0: Well, and the irony is, is some some people may be seeing this video on YouTube or Facebook or wherever else, and they're saying, "Oh no, guys, go back to just straight audio. You're yeah. a whole lot better to listen to like, than you are like to right, look at." Right
1: now, I'm I'm using this little like lamp that has coffee beans in it right now. That Bethany, has. <laughs> you're letting your
0: little light shine, baby. You better believe it. <laughs> well daniel thanks for coming back on and spending time to be with us once again uh last week we talked about whether or not we're in the end times do we find ourselves in the end times do we see the bible playing out in front of our eyes and as we mentioned last week, there are various perspectives on the end times There are various perspectives on the millennium. You have the premillennial perspective, which seems to be the predominant viewpoint within evangelical Christianity. You have the postmillennial viewpoint, which seems to be a rarity in our modern day and time. There's the amillennial perspective, which we all hold to. And then within each of those perspectives, there are subgroups and subsets, subheadings of perspectives that, that you might say exist. And, for a lot of people, there's a lot of angst in the world. There's a lot of concern in the world. And, and we talked last week about our own perspectives, where we are, the biases that we hold, the lens, maybe not bias, that, that may be the wrong word, but the lens through which we view scripture. And the way that we view scripture will will color that interpretive strategy that we take, whether it's a premillennial perspective, a partial preterist perspective, which Kevin and I both fall into, a full preterist perspective, which you fall into. There, there's a wide variety of ways that one can view the end times and prophecy and things like that. We spend a lot of time talking about that within its context. And this week, what we're wanting to talk about is how do we make application of that apocalyptic literature. How do we make application of prophecy in our day and time? How do we make it make sense to us? And that doesn't mean how do we misinterpret it to our own ends? How do we make it fit the narrative mold that we've grown up with, that we've been conditioned to view it through that that's not, that's really not the purpose of this podcast How do we respect the context, but still find application for those things for us in our modern day and time? And that's really what we're going to be talking about in this episode.
1: Yeah. And Daniel, it's great to have you back, man. Uh, We love having you on our episode. And Lee, it's good to have you back too. We thought you got raptured there for a minute last (laughs) week because you were just gone, man. We didn't know what happened, but it's good to have you back. And Daniel, we were talking last week a little bit just about future hope. What kind of hope? Do Christians have if preterism is true? And for those who are just now listening, perhaps this is the first time you've ever heard of our podcast. You've ever heard of our program. Please go back to the last episode and listen Dan- to Daniel talk about uh, preterism and prophecy. And then we also had Daniel on probably about a year ago to discuss preterism and exactly what that is and what that means as far as eschatology is concerned. And so we're not going to rehash all of those things, but. We were talking about specifically the book of Revelation because in Revelation chapter one, Revelation chapter 22, we see that the things John was writing about this prophecy, it was to happen soon. This isn't something that was going to be far away, uh, long in the distance. We don't see that in scripture. This was something that was to happen quickly. And so that's one of the main reasons you're a preterist as well is because of that. So when people read the scripture and they come to the understanding, as, as you have come to, that Jesus has already returned and that it was more of a prophetic judgment than it was this, this this final end time. Where is the hope left for people? What would you say is the hope for Christians who believe as you believe?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, I to- and of course, it's a totally natural question, because if your hope is one day the earth is going to explode or one day I'm going to fly into heaven, or whatever, then obviously if, if someone comes around and says, well, actually those things were talking about the first century, naturally the question is, where are we going now? Are we living on some kind of eternal earth? What, what's the deal? Yeah. And the basis of my belief in this actually comes from one of the passages you mentioned, Revelation 22. Revelation 22 paints this scene in verses one and two, where there's this uh, river of life fro- flowing from the throne of the lamb and of, and of God. And then it says in verse two, that on each side of the river, there's this tree of life. And it, it is, uh, in, it's in season, no matter what time of year it is. Uh, there's there's no night there because there's always day, right? And so, and people have access to it year round. There's gates that are on the north and the south and the east and the west, and the gates are always open because there's no night there. And he says that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations and i think that's what our hope is um, i believe that the gospel of jesus was so far ahead of its time and is still so far ahead of our time that it's pulling us in a direction towards healing real healing through the good news of jesus like take for example race issues right um, or social class issues or even uh even like um issues of gender roles, right? Yeah. When you look in Christ, Galatians three says there is no Jew or Greek bond or free male or female. Well, if that was true for a group of uh, Christians sitting around a dinner table in someone's house talking about Jesus, then what kind of revolution could that bring about if we're on a trajectory towards everyone coming to understand those truths Everyone coming to understand that there is no difference between, you know, a black and white or male and female or or the upper class and lower class that we're all one, that we're all in this together. That's a message of healing. And so that's where I see the world headed to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. okay. so with that in mind, then there are passages that are in the book of Revelation and I know when I was studying preterism, a passage that I oftentimes came across where people would try to refute this idea of Jesus already returning, and they would go to Revelation 21, verse four. And I know, I know you're very familiar with this passage, and so this yeah, is more yeah. of a softball question for you. Um, but when people read this, this is what the t- the verse says. It says, we'll, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more mourning or crying or pain or suffering for the old things have passed away or the former things will be no more. Well, Christians read this verse and they say, hey, Daniel, there is still suffering. There's still pain. There's still death. There's still tears. So clearly Jesus could have not come back yet. The events in Revelation could by no means have taken place because we still see all these horrible things going on around our lives. How do you respond to that?
2: Yeah, well, you know, first off, uh, there were people in the first century saying that like the resurrection had already happened, like Hamanias and Philetus. And Paul's argument wasn't to go, "Hey, we'll look around us; like we're still crying, we still have pain. Obviously, it hasn't happened." You know, because I think that their <laughs> understanding of it was a little bit different, right? Because we could easily point to the churchyards and say, "Hey, there's still graves out there," like we talked about last. Yeah, week. yeah. Um, but I think that the answer to this question comes from trying to read these passages in light of how the Old Testament used this language. When you look at Israel in exile, like whether it was Babylonian exile or Assyrian Mm -hmm. exile, the language uh, when they're outside of the land of Israel is that of death, is that of sorrow, is that of pain. But when they're brought back to the land, like Ezekiel 37, you know, the Valley of Dry Bones, he says that Israel came up out of their graves, that he would bring them back into their land. It wasn't physical death that was, that was uh, in view. It was covenantal death or relational death with God. That is when they were out of the promised land, they were dead. When they came back to the promised land, they came back to life. There's passages in the old Testament, like Isaiah 25, for instance, and other texts that talk about wiping away tears in connection with returning from bondage, um, You'll know the text, which in Psalms that that talks about how they hung their harps on the trees by the rivers in, in Babylon, uh, because they weren't going to sing anymore; they were just going to weep. Mm-hmm. Or, we, or we call uh, the book that follows Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations. Lamentations. Yeah, lament. Yeah. So to so to to uh, bring them back into the land is to wipe their tears from their eyes. So this mm-hmm. is this is restoration language that's being used in in revelation that's common that's pretty common in texts specifically dealing with the restoration of Israel in the Old yeah. Testament.
1: Well and I, yeah. and I feel like when we read the scriptures man we do this all the time. We take whatever's happening around us and our current yeah. culture and we try to somehow inject that into the scriptures. And we and we it's not just with prophecy. I mean, we do that with with any issue we're, we're, we're experiencing some issue, and so we try to go to the Bible and shoehorn it into what we're seeing today to try to make sense of it. But quite frankly, there's so many things the Bible doesn't touch on, uh, especially that we're currently experiencing. There's so many issues and topics that the Bible doesn't address, in large part because a lot of those things weren't happening culturally weren't happening culturally at that time. Another reason is right. because they had different worldviews. They had, it was a, it was a definitely a very much domineering patriarch society. They had all sorts of assumptions at that time of the way that they believe the world operated in the way that they think things should happen. Well, we, we put that into prophecy as well. And we try to read the book of revelation and, we look for signs of things that are happening today, and go, "Oh, well, this must be it." I mean, the Book of Revelation is happening right in front of our eyes. These these events are unfolding, and I know it was people used to to put the memes up, especially during uh, 2020. They're like, "Well, I want to see what chapters happening today in Revelation," and people are saying that to yeah. be funny. But a lot of people, I think, that's really how they understand things to be happening, or at least they understand that those things are still in the future and all these specific things are, are going to unfold in that particular way but they don't realize that this is apocalyptic language it's prophetic right. language it's the same kind of language we see in the old testament used it's not anything new and this is something that they would have been very familiar with that we're not familiar with and so yeah. even growing up in the churches of christ i was taught to take the book of revelation as a figurative book but then we would take two or three verses and say, but this is literal and this is literal and yeah. this is really going to happen. And that's that inconsistency again. And so I think it's important when we read scripture to make sure we're not just reading it within its, its textual context, but also in its literary context, because that's so important to make sure that we're not injecting ideas into the Bible that are never there to begin with.
2: Yeah. And one more point about the no-death uh, passage, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus said several times, like in John 11, 25 and 26, he said it in John chapter six and in John chapter eight, you know, if you, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, if you believe in me, if you live in me, you'll never taste death. You'll never die again. In John 11, he says, even if you die, you'll never die. So uh, when we look at that passage, you know, was Jesus correct? Like do, do Christians still die? In one sense, Yes. But in a greater sense, when we understand that, when we understand life as to know the Father, as he described it in, in John 17, 30, then no, Christians never die. Even if they physically die, they'll never die. They'll always have a relationship with the Father. And so when you look at Revelation 21, you don't even have to go to the Old Testament. You can yeah. even go to Jesus' own teachings when he said that th- these were current realities for those who lived and trusted in him. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, in recognizing that Jesus is speaking metaphorically, yeah. it, it, we we see that. We recognize that. If your eye causes <laughs> you to sin, pluck it out. I mean, we recognize that Jesus is not speaking in a strictly literal, in a wooden literal sense. He, right. He's speaking metaphorically. And whenever you think about the way we communicate, if, if try this whenever you're just talking with somebody and you're just having a conversation, listen to how much of our language and how much of our communication with one another is metaphorical. It's figurative. It's that we use simile and metaphor all the time, whenever we communicate various concepts yeah. and recognizing those metaphors and their forms within scripture, that's really important to, to establishing that context. And Kevin, just what you said ex- exactly a minute ago, man, you're right on the mark. We take things that are literal or rather metaphorical and we make them literal because it suits our worldview, it suits yeah, our perspective, yeah. it automatically or already dovetails in with what we already know to be true. And if if something doesn't do that well then we take a metaphorical approach to it Mm -hmm. and daniel in mentioning the metaphor that's used in terms of death being out of the land for israel in the old testament and life being restored to the land right and seeing how john peppers that type of language that jews in the first century would have been familiar with all throughout his revelation letter even in his epistles as well especially in revelation in terms of that apocalyptic discourse well it does stand to reason. And I'm asking this for myself more than anything else. Cause Kevin is a partial preterist. I do the same thing. You know, I'm looking at that passage over there where he's yeah. talking about how the tears are going to be wiped away and there's no more pain. There's no more, de- no more death. There's no more crying. Well, yeah, I'm waiting for that to happen, man. And it's still here. So Jesus, if look at all of the different metaphors that are used wh- and we don't take that literally, well, then why do we take this passage in a literal sense as well? It, it To me, contextually, Daniel, what you're saying makes a whole lot of sense.
2: Yeah, well, it, it is comfortable. I mean, it's comforting. Like, like for example, there's a passage in Romans 8, 18 that says uh, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And that's a common funeral passage, you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah, this life's tough, but man, we're going to have it good in heaven. Um when you, when you read the New Revised Standard Version of that passage, he says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is about to be revealed in us. So even that passage has this sense of imminence connected to it. So why do we go and read those passages literally? Why do we apply them to us and not to the audience that was most often being persecuted in the first century that originally received these letters of comfort? Um, it's because it makes us comfortable. I mean, yeah. it, it, gives yeah. us, it gives us peace. I mean, when we sing No Tears in Heaven, and I still sing all those songs, because I, I mean, I believe that literally there will be no tears in heaven, you know what I mean? But I, I also, uh, and I understand the encouragement that that gives to my brothers and sisters who don't share my eschatological, you know, paradigm. Um, but at the same time, when we get into a discussion like this, we have to first set the context. Um yeah. Well, I, I was
1: just going to say to to buffer what you're saying. Yeah. When I was studying the topic of hell, you know, Revelation fourteen nine through eleven is a verse that a lot of people use, and they. They try to enforce that literally. It says, yeah. you know, he. Uh, it, it's. I'll just read this real quick. It says, a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, "If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead, once again, the mark of the beast. Everyone wants to take that literally, is literally as well. Um, you know, it's the COVID shot, or you know, it's the vaccine. Bill Gates or and his microchips. Yeah, yeah. Bunch of heathens. Um, Says he, himself, me. He, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Now here's the verse that uh, people use to talk about hell. It says he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And oh, they yeah. have no rest day or night. Well, if you read that, as an isolated statement that's unqualified, sure, it looks like whatever's being discussed is literal conscious torment. This smoke's going to ascend forever and ever. This fire's going to be there all the time. But then you say, well, what kind of language is this? Well, it's apocalyptic language. Do we ever see this language elsewhere in the Bible? And the answer is yes. We see it in the book of Isaiah 34, 8 through 10, where it says for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its stream shall be turned into pitch. Its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched day or night. Its smoke shall ascend forever and ever. Almost identical to Revelation. Uh, So Isaiah 34 is speaking of the destruction of Edom, However, we know Edom's not still literally burning to this day. There's no smoke still rising from the remains, though. The point Isaiah made is that Edom's fire would not be limited to just a day or night. It would burn constantly and continually until it had consumed everything. And if Revelation is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which from my understanding, that's your position, then, then the same would be true. That this destruction would be something that was permanent, you know, Israel's never been built back to its prominence, right? I mean, everything was completely destroyed. Even though there had been rebuildings in times past, it's never been able to get back to what it was before. And so that's the kind of language we see happening in Revelation, which, of course, even if you don't take that view, that would be some sort of of, of judgment or punishment that, once again, would be more about uh, destruction than it would be anything else.
2: Yeah, and and you, what's interesting is in the passage that you just... reference kevin in revelation 14 in like the very next verse or maybe the verse after so babylon has just fallen now the day of the lord happens like six times in revelation yeah revelation repeats itself from different perspectives always ending in the day of the lord so this judgment scene that you just described is to me parallel to the one in like revelation 20 the great white throne judgment Mm -hmm. you know and what he says there after that judgment scene is he says blessed are the day are they who die in the Lord from now on. (laughs) So so there's something about the fall of Babylon that, that changes their perspective on death or what happens after that. There's something that makes them more blessed than those who died before the fall of Babylon. Now it doesn't eliminate the death part. There's just something about it that changed. You see? So even that passage, uh, you know, ties into our discussion. And that's where I thought you were going originally in more ways than one. Um, let me let me comment on that on that though, Kevin, because you brought out how this language used in Revelation fourteen is maybe sourced from or borrowed from, or it's just a similar language that's used in like Isaiah thirty-four, yeah. or like or like Nahum chapter one, or any of these other passages. Yeah,
1: Ezekiel has a lot of this type of language in it, yeah.
2: That talk about the earth just just being destroyed and every person being judged, but it's talking about the fall of Babylon. Mm-hmm. This. Is where modern application application of apocalyptic literature comes into play. Apocalyptic language is the language of the oppressed. Apocalyptic language is the type of hyperbolic, uh, over the top language that people who are undergoing severe oppression need to give them hope, to to give them a vision of the future, and to let them know that that God's justice you know will come about in one way or another whether it in some you know uh, like like Shadrach Meshach and Abednego hey we might die but God's still just right or it yeah. might even happen within their life right so apocalyptic language is the language of the oppressed we can keep this language in context right like uh, saying okay this is about Edom or this is about the Medes and the Persians or this is about Greece or this is about Jerusalem while at the same time saying when people fall into these same patterns today, this language is just as relevant to talk about them and their situation. The the greatest example of this that I can think of is during the civil war. What was the song of the North? The battle hymn of the Republic, right? Which talks about uh, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is, you know, trampling out the vintage where the great grapes of wrath are stored. They're using Apocalyptic language to talk about the conflict between the North and the South. These are this is something that human beings have. I, did, always I just done. hear
1: Elvis Presley's voice, man.
2: You That's do. Awesome. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> hearing that
1: song right now.
2: <laughs> yeah, but but they looked at that as a day of the Lord, and and then the song uh, "Jesus is Coming Soon" was written during World War II. Uh, we've always gravitated towards apocalyptic language to give us hope to inspire us that that God is doing something in the midst of all this turmoil. And God's not left us. Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: Well, and in, in terms of that hope, I think that is, that's something that in this conversation about the millennium in the pre-millennium, a millennialism, partial preterism, full preterism, anytime there's a debate about these things, this idea about hope is that's a concept that's left out of the discussion entirely. Yeah. And whenever we, lose that part of it we we tend we're focusing so much on the nuts and bolts and we're focusing so much on the technical applications of all of this and we tend to focus on who's right who's wrong etc cetera, et cetera. we we tend to forget that the purpose of these letters to begin with in the old testament was to give israel hope Mm -hmm. That within the midst of their captivity within Babylon, something better would happen. And then wherever the the Medo-Persian dries up, something better is going to happen. They're able to return to the land. Hey, here it is. The promise has been fulfilled. It's been reestablished. They were able to cling to that hope with that language. The same thing's true with the Revelation letter. You have Christians that are being persecuted. You have Christians that are facing persecution on every front. It's giving them hope. And whenever we make it about whose interpretation is right or whose interpretation is wrong, and we end up throwing up walls of fellowship over that and we disfellowship people because they disagree with our viewpoint on an incredibly complex type of literature, ancient literature that we can barely even understand just as lay people. And and by that, I mean, Kevin and I, I don't mean you, you, you understand this way better than I do, brother, Uh. but but we tend to, we, we lose all of that in this conversation. We lose the purpose that this can hold. And no matter what perspective someone has, there's a measure of hope there. But even then, whenever you see all this happening, it seems as though the focus tends to gravitate towards the doom and gloom. It tends to gravitate towards the, the seriousness of what's going on in the world. And whenever that happens, it almost seems as though from some of these perspectives, that hope is lost because that's what we choose to focus on. We choose to focus on the wars. We, chen, we tend to choose to focus on the famines. We choose to focus on the pestilence and the disease and the illness and the death and the calamity. We focus on all of those things. And in that, we see all of that playing out in the scripture right before our eyes, to quote it. And where's hope in that? And, and a lot of times that hope, it's it's lost because we're focusing on the wrong things. I wonder what it would be like if we were to shift our perspective from focusing on what's going to happen next. Who's Russia going to bomb next? What's the next nation that's going to rise up in all of this? What's the next illness or disease that's going to take place? What's the next big thing that's going to happen if we begin to look at the hope that we have as God's people? How would that change the narrative in this? I mean, to me, that seems to be a healthier perspective to take, but I mean, what do I know? I'm just a layperson in Oklahoma. I mean, who knows?
1: Well, so much too is... it it seems to be an alarmist approach to everything. Yeah. Uh, especially yeah. Christians in America, it's we 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 feel so entitled to everything that when there's a little bit of discomfort we cry persecution. And then when you actually start meeting people who have truly been persecuted or individuals from other countries who have really either seen someone lose their life or seen someone tortured or perhaps were tortured themselves in the name of of uh, their Christianity because they're a Christ follower, you realize just how good we have it. And it just seems to be this, this narrative. Um, and, and, you know, I really don't like the word narrative because everyone uses, it. it's kind of like the word deconstruction. Now it's kind of the popular, like <laughs> bingo, you know, someone said this word, but, yeah. um, you know, when you look at the, this narrative for lack of better words of we're, we're under attack, you know, our freedoms are under attack. America's under attack. And, and, and you start really ask yourself, well, First, first of all, um, what concern is that to me as a Christian, right? I mean, is and, and what I mean by that is you you never see Paul, you never see the the earliest Christians. Uh, they're they're not really shaken by these types of things. And they were facing true persecution. They were literally dying for their faith, literally being tortured. And Paul's like, hey, the more you torture us, the the more the gospel's gonna grow. Yeah. And today it's like someone sneezes on us, and we're like, "Oh, we've got persecuted people are coming after Christianity. What are we going to do? What are we going to do?" And non-believers look at that and they see how fearful we are, how terrified we yeah. are. There's no stability in a lot of Christians anymore, uh, and I won't say a lot in many Christians, especially the more fundamentalists, because they're terrified. They feel like they have to keep, you know, everything is about saving things. Everything is about preserving. And while I'm not faulting people in and of themselves, like I don't want to be persecuted for my Christian faith. I'll, I'll be the first to tell you I don't want that to happen. But at the end of the day, I have to ask myself, am I being persecuted? No, I'm not. And number two, even if that were to happen, what kind of, as you were saying, Lee, what kind of perspective should I have toward that? Should my end goal to be to preserve my freedoms as an American, or should my end goal be to love as Jesus loved, and to do everything I can to to help people out in the best ways that I can, or, or is it more about just making sure that my entitlements are safe? And those are two different things when you look at persecution versus having my uh, in, entitlements taken away from me. <laughs> and uh, you know that it, it's and it really is something that I don't realize still to the to the fullness that I need to because I need to talk to more people to fully understand what it means to be persecuted because we just really don't have a clue we really don't um compared to people who've really gone through those things
2: yeah for sure and and it makes it so hard to comment on like and keep a straight face you know like uh in the first edition of this I guess we were talking about some of the pain that people are going through in Ukraine and I was uncomfortable even responding to that. Like, how do I give them hope? Because I can't imagine what they're going through. You yeah, know? yeah, I don't ever want to. And you almost feel dirty, even because we're in such a such a yeah, like a everything will be okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, guys, don't worry about it. You know, yeah. um, no, we're we're in such like a protected environment that those that's not our reality right now. And so it almost seems unfair for us to even comment on. But I think that we can draw on. Uh, on off of Paul, who did undergo severe persecution. And at the end of the day, his his response was, look, all things belong to me, whether it's life or death or the the powers that be or things present or things to come. Everything belongs to me. Everything belongs to you because we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And so his his perspective was own it, whatever it is, and uh, learn to be content in all things, but also learn to give thanks in all things. I think that's a big part. Is we're so wrapped up in like consumerism, that our um, our joy comes from purchasing stuff, and we're only ever thankful if we're getting new stuff. But we have a lot to be thankful for from from our from our toes, you know, to to our like uh, Lee was saying to our refrigerators. If we can learn to be grateful for literally everything that we have, I think that a lot of the temporary things that happen to us that do. You know, kind of suck won't seem won't seem as bad, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: No, and and that's where you look at like Second Corinthians four seventeen, where Paul calls yeah. his afflictions light, and then earlier he had talked about how he had been shipwrecked, he had been stoned, he had been in prison, and yeah. he had gone without food for a long period of time, and you know he just he he gives a laundry list of all these things that he had gone through. And then he calls them light afflictions. And I think it's funny because sometimes those in the Christian world accuse everyone else of being snowflakes. Um, and then they're the ones who are always crying persecution yeah. um, when, when just the smallest thing happens. And here Paul is like, man, these things are light afflictions. Well, he's not writing and saying, we've got to do something about our Christian freedoms. How dare they do this to us? You know, once the, Israel was a powerhouse and we didn't have to suffer this persecution. We've got to take things back. We've got to restore things back to the way they were. But you don't see a Paul ever saying anything like that. Instead, you right. see Paul saying, hey, I've gone through this. I've gone through that. Yeah, yeah, sure. I've gone, a, you know, yeah, I've been beaten. Yeah, I've been stoned. Uh, I, and, and, you know, we're not talking about uh, on drugs either. You know, uh, he's, he's been stoned yeah. before. And, you know, he just goes through all these different trials. And he's like, oh, yeah, those are light afflictions.
2: Yeah, and, his, yeah. <laughs> his, his whole posture is the the privilege of knowing Jesus is worth so much more to me than all the crap that I've had to go through.
1: Yeah, you know, like if he was in America and, and they're like, well, what kind of trials have you gone through? Well, man, the yeah, other day I was, like, I was on Facebook and Facebook deleted my comment. Paul, can you believe that? You know, um, I mean, I mean, I can only imagine the kind of rebuke. I mean, Paul is, you know, he was accustomed to telling people to cut their cut their uh, weenies off uh, at times when he got upset. So, I mean, I can only imagine what he would tell people in a situation <laughs> where they're complaining about their life and their trials and then everything Paul went through.
0: Well, one yeah. thing, one thing, though, to keep in mind, and I, I think having perspective is really, really important. But one of the things that, that tends to happen in a lot of these conversations, I, and I think this is a good point. And Kevin, I'm I'm not trying to run over what you just said. And usually when someone says and prefaces it like that, they usually run over what the person just said. <laughs> I'm coming
2: to you in love. But like, <laughs> here
0: <I> yeah. <laughs> but but like with like with the situation in Ukraine, you know, for example, we think about what's going on over there. We think of the bombs falling, we think of, you know, the, the shelling that's going on, supply lines being cut off, people running out of food and water. And then I think about some of the anxieties that that I have had. I think yeah. about some of the the troubles that I have had in my own life and how difficult some of those times can be for me. And it's real easy to look at some of those other things that are happening across the world to other people and say, well, man, I really don't have it that bad. But it doesn't take away from the fact that those things that I have suffered are still hard for me at that time. Sure. It's yeah. still yeah. traumatic there there are still some things that happen that are still very hard to bear and very hard to deal with even though it may pale in comparison to something else it doesn't take away from from the pain and the anguish that i may feel at that point in time you know for example someone you know kim and i may have a fight we don't fight often rarely do we ever fight but occasionally we do occasionally we get sideways with each other. In fact, and, and I mean, she doesn't have time to listen to this podcast that often. So hopefully she won't hear this for a good while, but
1: I'll make sure to send it to her.
0: Uh, yeah. Make sure. Yeah. <laughs> just send her this clip, Kevin, but like, but like last week we had like a big blow up one morning before I left for work. And it was, and it's funny because it was over her password, not working on, on the iPad that she uses in the computer that we use to school our kids because we homeschool our kids and it wasn't working and i can remi- i can count on one hand we've been together for almost 20 years and i can count on one hand the number of times i have seen her go nuclear and lose her temper and that was one of them and like she just went off and you think about it, I can't log in to this device or whatever else. Is it really that big a deal when there are people across the world that are dying? When, whenever you know there's this going on or, or her and I have a fight and it's, we have another friend of ours who just found out her husband has been a serial philanderer and he has cheated on her multiple times. They're going oh, through wow. all that. How bad is it? You know, she's going through that. How bad is it really for me that we're having a fight over a password? And we tend to minimize that ourselves, but even that can set the stage for your day. Even that can still be harmful. And we tend to, to minimize what we ourselves then experience and say that it's no good. And then after a while, that pattern of behavior, whenever we do face real trauma, something that's really serious, we then tend to downplay that. And then we end up in this loop in this cycle that perpetuates itself. So while it's fair to say that we have it way better than anybody else ever has in the history of of mankind or humankind, you might say, um, we're definitely better off than we were. But that doesn't negate the very real situations that we find ourselves in and some of the, the anguish that can come from that. Now, does that say maybe we're we're bigger snowflakes than we ought to be whenever someone disagrees with us on Facebook? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's some perspective that we need to have there, but... At the same time, there's—I uh, I don't want to say just because other people have it worse off than we do, that doesn't necessarily. Yeah, it does It doesn't
1: erase our own pain. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. No, and I agree completely. You know, and that's—I I, I think it was—I don't know, Crystal. Maybe we talked a l- about this a little bit. I think it was with her or, or someone else where we were dealing with. Sometimes we try to minimize our own situations by saying, "Well, you could always have it worse." And in doing that, we're not actually dealing with our own hurt. We're not dealing with our own pain; just kind of pushing it away. So, definitely agree with you on that.
0: A much more succinct way to put the point. I just spent what three or four minutes (laughs) trying to say.
1: Well, (laughs) no, and 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 I agree completely because uh, what ends up happening, you know. And in fact, I remember um, we we were sitting. This was actually in in our seminary school preaching school, as we call it in the churches of Christ. but we were talking about how when you're dealing with anyone at your congregation, at your church, don't ever minimize their problem just because you don't think it's that big of a deal. And uh, I remember someone they had they had lost a pet. and that was and I used to be a very insensitive person and I quite frankly, I still am in a lot of ways, and so I'm working on that, but they were just it was they were tore up on that. Well, all I could think of is, well, you know, I lost my sister when I was your age in a car wreck and you're crying because, you know, Mr. Fluffles died. And and, and in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, get over it, man. Like it's, it's no big deal. I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking in my mind. And I'm glad, goodness, I'm glad I didn't say that at that time because (laughs) the pain they were experiencing was just as real as the pain I experienced when my sister died. Um, now people can say, well, Kevin, but your, your situation was still worse. Uh, yes. I, I would agree with that, but it doesn't, it doesn't take away from their pain. Um, but I think it does going back to the, to really the main point that we're trying to make on this with Daniel specifically is just that hope that no matter what we're going through, uh, we kind of went on a tangent there, I think, but no matter what we're going, oh, we I did, I did anyway. <laughs> um, but no matter what we're going through, we need to accept the pain. We need to accept the grief. We need to work through that grief. We don't need to act like it doesn't exist, even if it is something that you're talking about, something that would seem small like a password, but that could lead to, to bigger things. And that can ruin your whole day, those small things, or at least as we see them as small things, they can snowball and lead to bigger things. But even then, even when all these things happen, we can still look to the future. So no matter if it's we've had a bad day, uh, maybe we had a flat tire or maybe we don't even have a car or maybe someone is attacking us. Whatever it might be, we can still find God present in our lives. You know, God is always there. That hope still reigns. And Daniel, I love the way you put it, because the problem with contextualizing the Bible is sometimes we leave no room for application. So we can get to the point where we read the Bible and say, well, wow, this is a book written thousands of years ago. We're talking about a different continent. We're talking about different languages. We're talking about different worldviews, different situations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we get to the point where we read it, and we feel like there's almost no application to be had because it seems so far apart. But as you put it, those, those same trajectories, those same underlying principles— can still be applied to us today. So if the message to people going through persecution 2000 years ago is, hey, God is with you. So if you die, God is with you. If you live, God is with you. If you're you're tortured or persecuted, God is with you. If you're living in a country where you're blessed beyond measure and privileged beyond measure, God is still with you there. Don't feel guilty. You know, I don't, I'm don't. i not saying we should feel guilty for the blessings we have. We should take advantage of those blessings and we should be able to share those with others and help us to develop a, an attitude of gratitude, but also act on that. And so it doesn't really matter where we're at. Uh, we can always have that hope in and no matter really what your view is on eschatology.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And going back to what y'all were talking about a moment ago about personal suffering, that that password that you get wrong that morning or whatever that frustrates you or whatever it is, um, it can have a snowball effect, not in only your life, but also in the lives of those around you. Mm-hmm. Because as Paul, or rather, as God told Abraham in Genesis 12, you're not just to be blessed. You are to be a blessing. Um, I like what Richard Rohr often says that, uh, that election is not for the purpose of excluding everyone else but for the purpose of everyone else's radical inclusion, right? Like we are chosen by God, not because like, haha, we're chosen by God and you're not, you know, we're the one true church. We're chosen by God so that we can be a shining light and a blessing to everyone around us. And if you're having a tough day that morning, and then you take it out, you take it out on the cashier and then you drive off and Like they see your bumper sticker says, I heart Jesus or something. They're like, that's who Jesus is. Like, you know, Jesus endorses this guy. So that can have a negative, a net negative effect on the world around us. Um, Which brings me back to the hope thing. If I believe that the gospel is ahead of my time and I believe that God is with me in everything that I do, and I can develop this, this attitude of, and this, and this, uh, this knowledge of God's continual presence, which I think is what, Paul meant by praying without ceasing is always living in the presence of God. Then those little things, some days, yeah, they might hurt me a little bit than others, but on other days, I can name them, acknowledge them, and move beyond them so that I can be that positive impact that I need to be on the world around me. We can uh, learn to develop this attitude of being content in whatever situation, that we're in, so that we can have that impact and 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 uh, be co-creators with God in the renewal of everyone and everything around us of his will being done on earth, as I believe it's already been fulfilled in heaven, so that's uh that's what I would add to that little discussion there
0: well, and I think that that's a really good place that we might actually just put a pin in this. If you guys are good with it. I mean, we've, we've kind of said what we wanted to say and we said we were going to try to keep it short being this is yeah. an inaugural video episode, but in, in terms of, of how all of this works and applies, Daniel, do you have anything else that you are wanting to share before we wrap it up?
2: Yeah, for sure. I want to emphasize something that I said in the last episode, and that is the the whole idea of a prophetic office. So I believe that like, at least I think I believe, I change my mind on this stuff all the time. I, you have me back in six months and you'll get another perspective.
1: That's how our podcast is. If you listen yeah. to episodes that we've done a year ago, yeah. people are like, hey, I listened to your episode. That was really good. I'm like, yeah, I don't believe that anymore.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I would say that like the the fortune telling, when we look at prophecy as like fortune telling, like we talked about last week, I don't think that that kind of stuff goes on at least in my own personal experience. I've never seen that kind of stuff go on. However, when we look at prophecy as being a spokesperson for God,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. I mentioned last week how I believed that the minor prophets or the, 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 uh, the writing prophets or even the speaking prophets were so in tune with the justice of God, with God's character, God's love, God's righteousness, God's judgment, God's mercy, that they were able to see things play out and pronounce judgments on people because they were in tune with that justice. I think that in that sense, that there are uh, probably, you know, there's people today who do an excellent job at that. They're so close to God in their personal life with, with Him. Uh, they're so in tune with God's justice. They're so sensitive to the impression, oppression and injustices that go on around them that they in many ways speak on behalf of God. And I think that is like a prophetic voice, not in the sense of, hey, in nine, in the 70 weeks, the temple's going to fall, you know, the abomination of desolation, but in the sense that uh, like Amos chapter five, you guys are charging too much for rent, you know, <laughs> and God don't like that. Or, or uh, Matthew six, when you go to give to the poor, don't sound the trumpet and, you know, put it on YouTube, right? Like, don't take a video of yourself feeding the homeless, you know, <laughs> do it, uh, do it in the closet, right? Mm-hmm. Do it uh, between you and God. I think those types of voices are necessary. And I think that those, the prophecy in that way still has a big part of what we're doing here. We have to, to, to be in tune with God's justice so that his will will be done uh, for everyone around us. And like I mentioned before, 1 Timothy 2, or rather 2 Timothy 2 and uh, and 2 Peter 3 say that his will is for no one to perish, for all to come to repentance, for yeah. everyone to 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 come to the knowledge of the truth and to be saved. If if that's God's will, then how are we in every interaction, in every word, in every step, being a, a co-creator with Him to bring that will about in a positive trajectory towards healing and peace that I think can only come through the Gospel of Jesus. So that's all I would say to kind of wrap wrap it up there, Lee. Dude, that's. Do great. This-
0: Beautifully said, absolutely beautifully said. And if in terms of how prophecy works and revelation and all this other stuff about the end of all time and Daniel, the hope that's there—that's huge. I love let, that. Sorry, Kevin, go ahead, man.
1: No, no, no. Let me say one more thing, or if if you're fine with it, Daniel, I want to ask you a qu- one more question because yeah. and we might this this is a completely it's not a completely different topic, but Episode it goes three. yeah, it goes. <laughs> we, we may have to bring you on in the future because this does. It's the same subject, but it goes in a different, uh, it goes in a completely different direction. And that is people oftentimes appeal to these judgment passages, especially in the Old Testament, in the book of Revelation for the New Testament to talk about God being this God of wrath and how there's many different characteristics to God. And one of them is wrath. Well, the more that I've studied these, prophecies, these, especially as you put it as a more of a political commentary. And I I do just like you believe that these prophets of old, they were, it wasn't just a matter of being in tune with God, that they were, they were giving, giving some sort of divine revelation on some of these specific prophecies of things that were going to happen. But a lot of times it was attributed to God when in reality, it was just a matter of God prophetically telling them, if this is the route you go, these nations are going to attack you. I don't believe and I'm just going to make I'm just going to leave this statement here and we'll discuss it in the future. But I don't believe that this is God arbitrarily getting these nations to punish others. I don't think God is saying, well, hey, I'm going to choose this nation and I'm going to get them to punish this. What he's saying is because of your actions, you're going to be punished, quote unquote, because if you keep doing what you're doing, you're inevitably going to fall. And yes. the same thing in the book of Revelation, the same thing When Jesus, all of those passages that people point to to try to create this very violent Jesus of look at what Jesus is saying, well, what he's he's simply pointing out. Look, you you persecuted the prophets of old, and these are the types of things that happened in your past. Look at what happened. You're gonna you're continuing to go down this path, and when you do, which I think Matthew seven. Is is more or less speaking not to the world? I believe. I mean, I think the Sermon on the Mount obviously can include the world in principle, of course. But Jesus is speaking yeah. to Jews there, and when he's talking about few versus many, he's just speaking of what in is going to what in inevitably is going ha- to happen if they continue to go down this road. That very few would end up realizing what, you know, Jesus truly is the Messiah while he was on earth and this destruction is going to come upon them. And so many Christians have interpreted this as, oh, well, this is God's wrath. And right. there are passages that talk about God's wrath. I'm not denying that, but how we understand that, especially through that prophetic commentary, I think really can change the game for how we understand God and how God, for lack of better word words, didn't necessarily use nations but he was able to identify what these nations were going to do if they continue to go down these paths. So I don't know if, yeah. if you're on that same track with me.
2: Yeah, I am. I think about, um, I can't remember who it was. My brain is just blank. But it was one of the minor prophets rotting actually condemning Babylon for what they did to Jerusalem, right? Do you yeah. recall that? Well, yeah. are you
1: talking, um, yeah, I'm trying to, well, you think have- it was,
2: yeah, my ahead. brain, my brain's blank. I think it was like Zephaniah, but I can't remember. But anyways... I mean, who reads the
1: minor prophets anyway,
2: Daniel? Let's get that's real. That's why they're minor, you know? It's like the minor leagues. You go because it's cheap. Like, dude, and, I'm not even yeah, going to yeah. act like
1: I know know you know, which one that is, right? I mean, it's okay. like, come on now.
2: Okay, anyways, anyways. Um, I do agree with you, though. Yeah, I as think I was doing
1: my daily Bible reading this morning in Zephaniah... <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's like in uh, in Romans 1. The wrath of God is often turning them over to the logical end to the path that they've taken. Yeah. And I pointed that out for you know from last week from uh you know from Luke chapter 19 as well. Is every time that Jesus talked about the judgment of Jerusalem or the fall, the fall of the temple, it was always with tears in his eyes. Yeah. It was never in a like, ah, you guys killed me and you know, guess what's gonna happen to you kind of thing. It was always with tears in his eyes. And when we sing songs like Jesus is coming soon, it's like so preppy and like excited and money like,
0: will meet their yeah, yeah, doom.
2: Like, <laughs> the season, yeah. woke, destroy all of our yeah. enemies. Yeah, exactly. It's totally against the you know the posture <laughs> that Jesus took in those situations. And yeah. even when you look at Paul, like Paul's not like, yeah, man, one day them Jews are gonna get it. He's like, I would, I would gladly give myself over if it meant saving my people. Yeah, you know, it was always. With tears in their eyes. Well, and even Matthew twenty three, which is considered the harshest
1: rebuke uh, from that Jesus ever gives, at the end he literally is—you know—he's you can know, you, you see yeah. Jesus saying, "Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you up," and just just like a you know just like a mother hen would gather her little chicks, and this is imagery that Jesus loves them so much. It's not ha ha ha, you're going to get yours, and that's the attitude sometimes I think we have when we read these. Proph- prophecies in the Bible, both Old Testament and even New Testament, where were like, oh, yeah, well, if you don't follow God, one day you're going to get yours. And, and you never see that. I mean, Jesus is on the cross not saying one day you're going to get yours. Uh, you know, God, sick them. He's saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do and teaches us a completely different way to live. But that is, like I said, that's really another subject for another time. But I did just want to yeah. touch on that because I believe what you're saying does dovetail into that topic.
2: Yeah. Another major point on that is that the the sword does not come out of like, you know, Jesus's armory. It comes out of his mouth in yeah. Revelation 19. It's it's the gospel that said, this is the way of peace. This is the way of destruction. If you mm-hmm. go this way, this is where it leads. You better get ready. Right. Yeah. Yep. yeah absolutely well guys well, thank you so much for having me on i really do appreciate it
0: well dude thank you for coming back thank you for putting up with us thank you for putting up with the technical <laughs> issues that we had at the outset of this whenever we tried to do it the first time yeah. we appreciate you and your patience and your scholarship and for everything you bring to the conversation man we love having you on and, and i love all the guests that we've had on you're definitely at the top of my list you're definitely my I'm favorite definitely so. one of them you're yeah, one of them, man.
2: Yeah. We love all the guests you've had on and you're definitely one of them.
0: Yeah. You're one of those guests. You're one of my favorites.
2: You're in the top hundred,
1: man. No doubt. Yeah, top hundred. Absolutely. <laughs> no yeah, yeah. Well, and Lee that, has only Lee has never said that before either. So that's a huge compliment, Daniel. Ever. That's oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: I'll tell you what, man, we appreciate it once again. And to our listeners, we appreciate you. We always end our podcast by expressing our appreciation for you and by begging you to like this podcast and share it with other people. People And we're going to do the same thing now. Yeah. Like this podcast. Share it with your friends. Share it with your neighbors.
1: Like the YouTube video now. The YouTube huh? video. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's coming, man. I'm excited. I think excited. we may have lost
1: our credibility now that people know what we look like.
0: Well, they <laughs> may. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, like I say, I have a voice for radio yeah. and a face to match. But in any case, if you guys have any questions, feel free to send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is in the show notes. We love hearing from our people. Thank you all so much, and we bid you all a good night.